0: In the words of the Trade Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just trade offs. You can find trade offs wherever you listen to
1: your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Oh, well, hello, and
0: welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. We've got Diana O'Carroll here. Hi, Diana. Hello. And uh, also Dave Ansell. Hello, Dave. Hi, Chris. And, of course, I'm Chris Smith. Now, coming up this week, how scientists have discovered a new way to make large numbers of stem cells that can be used to treat leukaemia. And these are stem cells that have been taken from the umbilical cords of newborn babies. Also, the scientific reasoning behind the needle in a haystack phenomenon, why hunting for rare things actually makes them much harder to find. And we'll find out what the relevance that is to security at Heathrow plus how women can affect men's testosterone levels indeed it is official your partner's menstrual cycle is probably affecting your hormones and we'll find out what the consequences might be in just a minute Dinah.
2: (laughs) Thanks Chris and also this week it's our science question and answer extravaganza we're attempting to solve all your scientific problems including can tapping a tin of fizzy drink stop it from exploding all over you can we create artificial nerve signals and were people less smelly in medieval times
3: thanks diana and in this week's very seasonal kitchen science i'll be showing you the science behind putting salt on the rose, heat and frost free and why seawater might not be an ideal alternative if you want to have a go at this week's experiment we need some ice a bowl some salt and a thermometer thank you dave so a very cool kitchen science in the offing there in the meantime, if you
0: have any questions for us, then you can drop your comments or your feedback to us on email. The email address is chris at the naked You can also Twitter at us, of course, it's at naked
1: scientists. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net.
0: Hello and uh, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist News Flash with me Chris Smith
2: With me Diana O'Carroll
3: And with me Dave Ansell
0: now, first up this week, scientists have discovered how they can use a new technique to make very large numbers of stem cells. Now, a big problem with making stem cells outside the body is that when you try and grow them, for instance, in a dish and using things like growth factors to make them grow, the stem cells lose their stem cell They lose their ability to turn into lots of other kinds of cells, and they try and become very specialist kinds of cells, and that limits their use. But what scientists this week have announced in the journal Nature Medicine, and this is Colleen Delaney, who's at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre over in Seattle in America, they have found a way to grow very large numbers of cells called CD34 cells, and these are stem cells that you can collect from the umbilical cords of newborn babies. And these cells can be used to do bone marrow transplants. The problem is that the number of them that you get from a newborn baby is so low, it's only about 10% of the number you would need to treat an adult. So how do we get enough cells? Well, what they've done is to find that if they use a chemical called Notch1, and this is a signalling protein which seems to make stem cells grow in the bone marrow in the body anyway. If you incubate these stem cells with this Notch1 signal, then you can increase their numbers. In fact, they were able to grow 164 times as many cells as you would have normally in the dish doing this. And they demonstrated that these cells do remain as stem cells. They could put them into mice that didn't have an immune system, and they would get a new immune system using this technique. They've also been able to do this in patients who have got leukemias and are undergoing bone marrow transplants for their leukemia. So they took 10 patients who had a very severe leukemia and needed a bone marrow transplant and in those patients they took umbilical cord blood stem cells, grew them up using this technique and managed to get those patients to engraft, in other words you put the stem cells into the patient they go to the the diseased bone marrow replace the marrow that was there and was diseased before and give the patient a new bone marrow. And the exciting finding was that in the patients they treated with this technique then their bone marrow came back to life in other words started to make new blood cells 10 days sooner than using traditional techniques so it looks like you get a much better survival advantage because the sooner that persons get their cells back the sooner their immune system starts to work again and the, the more likely they are to have a good outcome so a very encouraging piece of work.
2: Well, it's a fantastic discovery, and it's even better because it's going to be tailor made to the patient as well. Well, um, something else that is perhaps tailor made to me uh, is that I'm quite scatterbrained at the best of times, especially when it comes to organising my things. And I'll often spend an evening rifling through bits and pieces, which, of course, were filed away in a safe place. Mm. And it's said that when you're looking for unusual objects, you're not as good at finding them. So, if you're security staff at an airport and you have, say, six hundred bags to scan, of which fifteen contains some sort of weapon you're much less likely to find all 15. Proportionate to the number of things searchers will make more errors if the object they're looking for is rare. As uh, lead researcher Jeremy Wolf said if you don't find it often you often don't find it and the reverse is true if you're looking for something that occurs more often such as sun lotion in which case you might think you can see it when it isn't there. In Current Biology this week, the researchers from Harvard have been looking at why this happens and they two groups of between 12 and 13 volunteers to search through some computer-generated bag contents. And common sense might tell you that because something's rare, you need to look through more boxes or bags and your brain just gets used to saying it's not there all the time and so you start to miss the thing you're looking for. But the new study shows however that it's actually the Ooh, it's there response which happens more slowly with rare objects. And it's an adaptive behaviour so that in terms of our ancestors if you were foraging for food you'd be more likely to stay in areas where it was common and less likely to stay in areas where it was rare and this could be really useful in training security staff at airports or even for radiologists looking for tumours and the researchers say that if they spend a couple of minutes doing a simulated search for common weapons or tumours then they might do a better job of really finding rare ones for the next 30 minutes or so. Because
0: it re-entrains them. Exactly yeah. How extraordinary to think that we're victims of our evolution, that uh, because we're commonly looking for things that are common, uh, it, it kind of makes looking for things that are uncommon, which is the very thing we want to do in science and we want to do it at airports, as you say, and in
3: radiology, much more difficult.
2: Yeah, unfortunate, but never mind.
3: <laughs> now, a living cell is an immensely complicated chemical machine working with thousands of interacting molecules. Unfortunately, it doesn't come with an instruction manual. Now, if I'm given a machine which I don't understand, the first thing I do is start prodding it and seeing what happens. And this is what biologists have been doing for the last 100 years at least. And now one of the biological equivalents of prodding a cell is by introducing new molecules into it and then studying the consequences. Unfortunately for biochemists, a cell is uh, bounded by a membrane, which is deliberately designed to filter the molecules entering and leaving the cell. If you didn't have it, it wouldn't work at all. Um, You can get around this already by genetically altering the cell to produce a molecule you want. Doing lots of very clever chemistry or even by injecting the molecule directly into an individual cell by hand. These are very laborious processes that only work for certain types of chemicals. Now, Alex Shelleck from Harvard University and colleagues have developed a far easier method. They've taken vertical silicon nanowires, essentially a forest of little silicon spikes, a few tens of nanometers across and about 100 nanometers high, and then covered them in the molecule they want to inject into the cells. They then just put the cells on top of them and the cells then slowly settle down over about an hour. Um, and being penetrated by these nanowires. This is a bed happened, of
0: nails for cells, isn't it? Really? Exactly,
3: just like that. Um, but it doesn't seem to hurt them at all. They've grown cells for five weeks um, sitting on these nanowires, and they seem perfectly and, and happy. And
0: the nanowires do actually go in through the cell membrane and get mm- inside the cell?
3: Yep, um they found 95% of the cells they put on top of this forest um, show that they've had the um, chemicals being put inside so them. So
0: whatever's decorating the nanowires then basically is moved inside the cell and dissolves in the contents of the cell?
3: That's right. They've injected DNA, RNA, RNA, peptides, proteins and small molecules into many types of cells and detected the effects of the molecules inside the cells. They can experiment on hundreds of cells at once, so you get good statistical data um, in the results. And even better, the team have been able to inkjet pr- print hundreds of small patches of different chemicals and different combinations of chemicals at different concentrations onto a slide. They can then put hundreds, lots of cells over the top and you can do hundreds of experiments all at once. Um, and they've even managed to take the cells off again, uh, off, off the um, spikes, and they seem perfectly happy. So you could, it opens up the possibility of doing more than one experiment um, on the same cell, one after another. Because obviously scientists have had the ability for
0: a while to use genetic techniques to turn on various genes in cells and make chemical markers and things but something like this that means you could put other chemicals into cells maybe toxins or things and do it in a very standardized way that means you can measure the same cells many many times over to work out reproducibly what's going on that could be really powerful i can see
3: and you can even control the dose yeah i don't, I don't know whether it would be in, used in any therapies anytime soon but certainly as a way of learning about cells i think it'd be very important indeed very powerful tool thank you dave now
0: Very interesting this week. Um, I've always been questioning this because listeners to The Naked Scientist for a little while might remember me covering a story back in about 2008. Uh, A guy called Jeffrey Miller showed that if you look at lap dancers in Albuquerque, imagine having a grant to go to a lap dancing club, Uh, he was asking these lap dancers in these clubs to record how many tips they got at different times of the month. And they found that women who weren't on the contraceptive pill, so they had a normal menstrual cycle, in the middle of their... Menstrual cycle around day 14, which is when you're most fertile, you're most likely to get pregnant if you have sex then. At that time, their earnings went up by 200% compared with women that were on the pill or at other times of the month. So that showed that it wasn't something to do with beauty, it was something to do specifically with signals coming from the women and influencing the men who are giving them tips in the lap dancing club. Now, no one could understand whether it was because the women were feeling more, I don't know, uh, attractive around day 14. Perhaps they were making themselves look nicer or they were sounding warmer, nicer because women's voices change menstrually as well. Maybe that was what was inducing the men to be more generous. No one knew. But now there's a study out this week which caught my eye. It's from a couple of guys at uh, the Florida State University, Saul Miller and uh, John Maynard, and they've written this in, in the journal Psychological Science. What they did was to recruit 37 male students. They're aged 18 to 23, so these are rumbustious young men, and they got four four females who were not on the pill so they had normal menstrual cycle and they asked these ladies around the middle of their cycle when they're most fertile to wear a t-shirt every night for three nights so day 13 day 14 and day 15 of the menstrual cycle they wore these t-shirts they then gave them back to the researchers who put them in an airtight bag and kept them Then, later on in the month, at day 20, 21 and 22, the women repeated the experiment. So what they've got now are T-shirts worn by these women at times of the month when they're very fertile and times of the month when they're not going to get pregnant if they were to have sex at that time. They then took these bags to these guys who they'd recruited and asked them to sniff them. But they also included some control T-shirts to make sure it was a fair test. And they took saliva samples from them before they sniffed anything and after they sniffed things because you can measure testosterone levels from saliva. And what they found was that when the people sniffed the T-shirts that had been worn by the girls when they were in the middle of their menstrual cycle and much more likely, therefore, to get pregnant if they had sex, what they found was that those individuals were rated, A, as much smelling, much more pleasant. When they smelt the T-shirts, the men said that smelt nice and their testosterone level was higher much higher, significantly higher, compared with individuals sniffing shirts from controls, in other words, shirts that haven't been worn by anybody, or shirts worn by girls later in the month. So this suggests that some kind of signal which is oozing out of women's bodies and changes with their menstrual cycle is influencing the way that men's brains respond to women and, and it's doing that by producing more or less testosterone which in itself is our arousal hormone, or one of them and therefore makes you feel fruitier for want of a better term. So women are manipulating the way that, that men feel. I think that's wonderful. We've, we've known that women do that to other women for a very long time. Women if they live together synchronise their menstrual cycles No-one's yet shown, and this is the first demonstration, that women may actually change the way that men behave towards women and perhaps even towards other men, because testosterone makes men quite aggressive too.
2: So do you think this could be the start of smelly T-shirt competitions or something?
0: Well, no comment. (laughs) Uh, I obviously don't know your washing techniques, but um, I I think it's an intriguing observation, and it's been a, a sort of gap in our knowledge that's been needing to be filled for a little while, actually.
2: So do they think that it's a chemical released in the sweat rather than perhaps different species of bacteria that might respond to different temperatures?
0: No one knows. We only know that it's a smell um, because this this experiment isolated the women from the very thing that was influencing the men. In the lap dancing club the question was, well the men could see the women so was there something else going on? Was it the women influencing the men? Here it's just the smell. So we don't know what's making the smell change but there's clearly something which is going into the men's noses and making them change their behaviour
2: Fascinating. chemically as well as
0: (laughs) in other other terms.
2: Alright, well moving on to a a less smelly gas Um, we've heard about sequestration deep beneath the earth with CO2 and now here's another way of dealing with the CO2 problem and it's copper. It's quite tricky to extract CO2 from air, as it's quite a stable molecule at least, compared to the other component of air, which is oxygen, uh, and also nitrogen as well. Uh, And so most of the time, gaseous oxygen will bond to a metal, for example, before carbon dioxide does. But this new copper complex reported in the journal Science this week can ignore boring old O2 and go straight for CO2. And the researchers led by Elizabeth Bauman at the Leiden Institute for Chemistry say that typically the problem with oxygen is that it will gain an electron more readily than CO2 but this copper complex will happily donate electrons to carbon dioxide instead. So to, so to extract CO2 from the air, they put this copper complex into solution, and the researchers say that the atmospheric CO2 to which it's exposed will be absorbed. And then to extract the carbon again, they just added a lithium salt solution, easy as that. Uh, they put a low voltage across it of about 0.03 volts, and presto, the organic com- compound precipitated out. And as a bonus, the uh, the byproducts can be converted into useful compounds, which can be used in things like cleaning products and wood preservation products. Uh, what's really useful is the copper complex can be cleaned at the end of the reaction and reused. It's a catalyst. So they managed to do this six times in seven hours. And compared to other methods of sequestration, it's actually really cheap. And uh, there's a possibility that uh, accessible copper ores might run dry uh, not too far in the distant future. So I don't know how, how long that might last.
0: Presumably, it's energetically favourable as well. Have they done the sums to prove that that is is actually worth doing it this way?
2: Well, yeah, because the uh, the voltage that they put across it to clean it um, again is so very low compared to other methods that you know is really cheap in terms of energy.
0: Thank you very much, Diana. Right, well, you couldn't really have escaped the coverage this week of the disaster that's happened uh, in Haiti. We've heard lots and lots of reports from Port-au-Prince, which is the uh, capital city in Haiti, where they had the earthquake earlier this week. It was said to be magnitude 7 on the Richter scale, and uh, the number of people who may be dead or injured runs into many thousands. Loads of those reports have looked at the humanitarian crisis, but very few of them have actually looked at what's going on geologically. So we've invited Dr. Paul Mann, who is a geologist at the Institute for Geophysics at the University of Texas at Austin, to join us and fill us in a bit more. Paul, welcome to The Naked Scientist. Okay,
4: thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. Could you first of all, in practical terms, explain to us what a a magnitude 7 quake is?
4: Okay, the term magnitude refers to the Richter scale, which is a way to assign a number to quantify the amount of seismic energy released by an earthquake. Uh, It's a logarithmic scale, so an earthquake with a magnitude 5 on the Richter scale would be 10 times larger than a magnitude 4. So just to uh, tell you what the effects of these different magnitudes might be as as a person, The 0 to 2 level is not felt. The uh, magnitude 3 level would be felt, but there's no damage. Okay, magnitude 4, you have shaking uh, with limited damage. Magnitude 5, you're talking major damage. Uh, Magnitude 6 is considered a strong earthquake, and that can cause destruction, especially in populated areas. Uh, Just to give you an idea of how many magnitude 6 earthquakes there are per year, there's about 120. Magnitude 7, which is the size of the Haiti earthquake, is considered a major earthquake with uh, damage over large areas. There's about 18 magnitude 7 events per year. Remember that most of them are occurring in unpopulated areas, so the, the Haiti event is unique in that respect and it occurred in a ve- very densely populated area therefore you have a lot of casualties
0: and geologically Paul what actually went on to cause this to occur
4: okay faults uh well basically we're we're on a plate boundary we're on the boundary between a small plate it's called the Caribbean plate and the North American plate and if you can sort of visualize this geographic region this is the Caribbean We've got uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic sharing the island of Hispaniola. We've got Jamaica off to the west. We have Central America farther to the west. So through this area runs a roughly east-west trending fault system. We call it a strike-slip fault. And what that means is the two sides of the fault are moving horizontally with respect to each other. But this fault movement doesn't occur in a steadily slipping Way instead, it occurs with these sort of spasmodic, jerking motions. These uh, these faults, because they're so irregular along their surface, can actually store motion for hundreds of years. So what's happened in Haiti is the, the fault is is basically a frozen surface. It hasn't moved since we think about 1770. As the plates keep moving past the fault, which is frozen the fault reaches a point where it can no longer sustain the stresses that have built up along it. So what we think happened in Haiti was that suddenly the fault ruptured in order to catch up to the plates, which have been smoothly moving past it for these hundreds of years.
0: And when you say energy is being stored in the fault, in what form is the energy being stored? Because obviously the plates are trying to move past each other a couple of centimetres a year. The the fault isn't going anywhere. So where is the energy actually going and how is it being stored there?
4: Well, the the energy is elastic energy and it's being stored in the rock beneath the, the fault trace that we see at the surface. And remember, these, the surface area of this fault is very large because it's cutting down through the upper part of the crust... This particular earthquake uh its hypocenter or the the zone of rupture at depth was about five kilometers below the earth's surface, so you can it gives you an idea of the large surface area along these very irregular fault planes. but it would be analogous to drawing a rubber band back, and that rubber band is storing elastic energy to the point where the rubber band breaks, and that would be analogous to the earthquake. <laughs>
0: You made some predictions a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, that this may be about to happen. How did you manage to do that?
4: Well, in seismology, uh we we avoid use of the term prediction. And to really to, to say to predict something, you have to be able to precisely state many aspects of the earthquake, including the epicentral area or where the earthquake occurs the size of the earthquake, which is magnitude 7 in this case, and most importantly, when exactly that earthquake is going to occur. For example, it's going to occur two weeks from now or two years from now. Unfortunately, in seismology, there is no success by anyone in predicting earthquakes. What we did with this event is what we call forecasting, much like you would do, much like a meteorologist might do on a on a weather forecast. We stated that we had a major fault, which we call the Enriqueo Plantain Garden Fault Zone. We know this fault extends about 600 kilometers between Jamaica and southern Haiti. We know that from our GPS studies, which were done by Dr. Eric Collet at Purdue University, that this fault uh, was moving at a rate of about seven millimeters a year, and remember the fault itself isn't moving, but the plates on either side of it are moving at that rate and Finally, from our historical records of Haiti, we know that the last fault that that moved, or the last large earthquake which we think was related to this fault, occurred in the eighteenth century, so we take the amount of time roughly two hundred and fifty years. We take the rate derived from the GPS study, seven millimeters a year. We uh, we calculate how much strain has accumulated, which was about two meters. Uh, we can convert the amount of strain accumulated to the size of the expected earthquake, which we had said was about 7.2, and, and the event turned out to be 7.0. But I think the key... Element here is that we did not make any statement about this earthquake was going to occur on January 12th. All we said was that this was an area of high seismic risk, especially given the existence of Port au Prince, a city of 2 million people, very poor construction practices, and it's only 20 kilometers north of the fault.
0: And just to finish off very briefly, Paul, what's the chances that this is going to happen again? very, very soon, as in do you think this is done for now or do you think that there's a lot more energy still sitting there and we should expect this to rumble on a bit longer?
4: Well, one of the uh, interesting aspects of these type of strikes of earthquakes is that the the release of strain over an area, in this case of about 80 kilometres, can actually cause an increase in strain on the adjacent segments of the unruptured fault. And there are many people now at the U.S. Geologic Survey and other universities who are working on models which are trying to predict or to forecast whether these adjacent segments of the fault will rupture and what the time frame might be. But again, with any studies of earthquakes, we have to be very careful about using this word prediction just because it is a very inexact science at this point.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Paul. We'll leave it there. That's Dr. Paul Mann, who is from the University of Texas at Austin, telling us about the geology underlying the uh, terrible event that we've seen happening in Haiti earlier this week.
1: Keeping you abreast of the world's best science the Naked Scientists.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. This week we're answering your questions. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com.
0: Uh, got a couple of things coming in already. Uh, setup or maybe it's set EP on Twitter, says, how many days in the month can a woman become pregnant? Well, the fertile window is around the time of ovulation, which is day 14, so you're really looking at two or three days either side of that um, because sperm can persist exist, survive inside a woman for two, maybe three days. And so that's why it's really important to use safe sex practices ahead of contraception, ahead of ovulation, and also the uh, time of ovulation can vary by a couple of days in some women. So it's really important to avoid, if you don't want to get pregnant, uh, unsafe sex in in that week in particular. Uh, We also heard um, from Visworld Titanium, who's in Second Life. Hello to everyone listening to Second Life. He says, I wonder if the women attracting men... Um, with the the testosterone story is intentional the women for instance wear additional perfume perhaps subconsciously during those periods well that was what people said about the study done on the lap dancers that perhaps the women were making themselves more attractive to the men and it was a a female behavioral thing that was making them more attractive what the researchers sought to do with this new study was to iron that out by making sure that the women who wore the t-shirts overnight that the men got to sniff uh, only bathed using a neutral smelling soap they all used the same cosmetics they didn't wear perfumes and other kinds of things they avoided uh, eating foods that might make them stink like garlic they actually say that in the paper so i think it's true and so they they attempted to control for that so we think it's actually some other chemical which is in some way stimulating them at uh, the men but but we don't actually know what it is yet that that will come next i guess now Dave a really good question which is highly seasonal given this cold weather Martin Taylor has said um, why are my windows so drafty my understanding of the second law of thermodynamics and perhaps you can explain what he means by that is that heat moves from hot body to a cold one so can you explain to me why cold air is flowing into my very nice warm room through a gap in a badly fitted window I've proved that cold air is moving in this direction by placing some soft tissue paper in the gap
3: yeah you're entirely correct about thermodynamics if you've got two stationary objects and you join them together thermally um heat will always flow from the hotter object to the colder object it's actually pretty much how we define temperature so what's happening with your windows? because definitely cold air is coming into your house that's because the situation is a bit different you're not putting two objects together and um cold, as it were, is moving into your hot house, what's actually happening is that cold air is moving into your house and laws of thermodynamics say nothing about um, how, where air goes and they don't um, disallow this so basically l- large lumps of objects can move around as they like not ignoring laws of thermodynamics but they don't constrain them in that way, but definitely um, heat will move from a hot object to a cold object otherwise.
0: Thank you very much Dave Now, i have got a question, probably this one's for you Diana, it's Sarah possibly Sarah, she says Chris, when comparing medieval times to present day, the lack of hygiene back then seems pretty offensive. Were people then just not as smelly as we are today? In other words, does the processing, additives, antibiotics and hormones in the food that we have today, for instance, affect our body owner? And she's a, um, an American who's actually listening to us in Germany.
2: I think uh, for the most part the answer is probably no um, I don't know if you're ever a fan of Blackadder or anything the stereotype of Baldrick, the smelly peasant um, is probably quite true and actually if you've ever been to any of those reconstruction sites like Jorvik, although that's about two or 300 years before well, the very medieval, very in there I, Exactly, <laughs> I mean it's, it's not quite medieval but I think it gives you a really good idea of what things might have smelled like um, and they, they include all sorts of toilet smells and cooking smells and mouldy thing smells, uh, it's pretty awful and from what we know from the archaeology um, there wasn't a lot of bathing going on for the peasants at least and there were certainly certainly in the houses of medieval people um, there are all sorts of bits of evidence for maggots and flies and things just living in the house with them Um, but it may have been for the more upper-class medieval people like lords and things they did actually bathe maybe
0: once a week. They used to keep their clothing near the loo in their castle didn't they because castles had guard robes which are the the bogs and correct me if I'm wrong but wasn't that done under the uh, intention that the things that rot your clothes the moths and things that would make your clothes go horrible would avoid the stink for the same reason we would
2: um, yeah, and they were probably slightly better ventilated than the rest of the place as well, because of course their toilets were just, you know, whole because your toilets would abyss. smell otherwise, wouldn't they? Indeed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yes, they probably did smell pretty awful. Uh, also, actually there's another thing I'd like to add, is that um, if you're constantly being exposed to horrible smells, you're going to be desensitised to them, aren't you? So perhaps, in that sense...
0: I think there are limits.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I I
3: definitely when I've been hiking for a weekend, or, or even or a week, and you just don't, can't wash, yeah. but after a few days you don't notice it, and everyone stinks, and you don't mind but as soon as you wash Until then you, you really notice the effect <laughs> it's all a relative thing um, diana very good standard of hygiene we have to say thank Dave. you i've got a question here for you chris from liam um, his question is does too much calcium make your bones brittle oh that, that's actually a very good question
0: um, and the answer is yes it does surprisingly of course calcium forms up with phosphate to make the chemical apatite, one of the hardest chemicals we know which is what makes bones hard and stony and tough But if you have too much calcium, that can be as bad as having too little. The condition osteoporosis, where the the bones actually begin to lose their calcification and the the matrix of the bone and get weak and are more likely to break. There's another disease called osteomalacia, where you have too little just of the calcium, and that also makes bones weak. But if people actually lay down too much calcium in bone and there's a condition called osteopetrosis from uh, Petrus as in stony. This is where people can have say five times the amount of calcium in their bones as they should have. It's a genetic condition, it's very rare, it's familial and it's. Uh, I think it also goes by the name um, Schomburg-Albers disease or something like that but it, it's very rare and in these individuals they cannot break down, their cells that break down bone called osteoclasts don't work properly because the way bone is normally formed is that you have Um, an equilibrium between laying down bone and breaking down bone and that's how bone continuously gets modelled and if you shift that equilibrium in one direction or the other you either lose or gain bone and what scientists have found is that people who have this osteopetrosis the osteoclasts that normally break down bone cannot work properly they have a deficiency of an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase and you need that to break down the calcium phosphate the appetite in order to remodel the bone and as a result they just keep on making their bones get harder and harder and harder and as a result they in fact go beyond the point of being beneficial and in fact become less flexible and more likely to to break so they get brittle
3: because yeah, I did a kitchen science a while ago about take because bones made up of both appetite and proteins and it's a mixture of the two things. The proteins make it tough and stop it breaking, and the appetite makes it strong. And if you haven't got if you haven't got enough protein in there, it becomes very brittle and it just falls apart.
0: Thank you, Dave. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. It's our science phone-in extravaganza. If you have any science questions for us, uh, then do send them in and we'll try and solve them for you. You can Twitter at us, it's at Naked Scientist, or you can send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com.
1: Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
2: And now it's time to join Mira Santelingham for an update from the world of technology. And this month she's using her artificial intelligence to solve mysteries.
5: Yes, so it's time for our first technology update of 2010, and I'm here with our resident techie, Chris Vallance. Hello Chris and happy new year.
6: Happy new year to you too, Mira.
5: So, what's been happening in the world of um, technology over Christmas? I hear that artificial intelligence has been playing a big part.
6: Well, you said uh, 2010, so I'm going to take you to 221B, 221B Baker Street, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Over Christmas, we had the release of the new Guy Ritchie film. As part of a trailer for that, if you like a digital interactive trailer, there's an online game, 221B. Now, what's interesting about that is the way in which it uses artificial intelligence... As part of the game, you get to play as Holmes or Watson. You have to interrogate suspects. You have to ask them questions, and the answers they give help you complete the game. The problem is, when you're asking a game character something, you could ask them it in any number of ways. Just using ordinary English, the possibilities are endless. So your sort of options are, let's do it like one of those old, uh, you know, choose-your-own-adventure-game books, essentially. You know, if you want to do A, click here. If you want to do B, click here. That's a bit limiting. So what the game designers decided to do was approach an expert in artificial intelligence to help them enable natural language-type interactions with the game characters.
5: So how does this actually work, and what's different about it?
6: This is one of the big challenges in game design, uh, natural linguistic interaction with non-player characters. Um, What this does is it uses the chatbot technology to... uh, recognize what a question means now it doesn't have any understanding of the meaning of words it doesn't have lots of long lists of complicated grammatical rules what it does is fuzzily pattern matches your question so it's, it's very good at matching your question with the questions it knows how to answer and uh, does that and produces an answer according to a script. So the real key here is its ability to recognise questions and know what the appropriate answer is. In effect, it's creating a digital actor in the game with a script, but one who can understand kind of what you're saying and respond appropriately.
5: And now you actually met up with the creator of this to find out a bit more.
6: Yes, I spoke to Rollo Carpenter, who developed the artificial intelligence running the game characters, and he explained how his system worked.
7: My, my work has been all about uh, creating uh, artificial intelligence that, uh, that talks, that communicates about anything and everything and that attempts to look intelligent, to um, appear to be self-aware. The same fuzzy technology, uh, fuzzy interpretation of uh, inputs, um, is used in the game. So it is our role to predict what you, as Holmes or Watson, what you might uh, know at that point in the game and the conclusions you might draw, the questions you might ask. But given the the nature of language,
6: there are a near infinite number of possible questions you might ask, some grammatical, some
7: not grammatical. So how does the computer... uh, understand a question it understands by predicting what you will say and finding the nearest match amongst its, amongst its trillions of predictions so essentially it's kind, it's kind of pattern, pattern recognition essentially exactly it is it is a kind of pattern recognition but where that um, where the patterns are all treated fuzzily um, if you mistype a few letters it's not going to be upset You've used uh, the technology you've
6: developed to build artificial personalities, but there is clearly commercial
7: applications for this kind of technology. What do you see as its potential uses? A machine that can genuinely understand what people say is valuable in almost any number of ways. Um, but some of the most obvious and immediate um, concern with um, Customer services, um, support, um, marketing, and so forth. So when I ring up a call centre, at some point in the future, I might get a, a computer? Indeed. Um, the people at the end of the phone all too often have to work to a very restricted script, and a computer would be capable of handling scripts 10,000 times larger. And so it may actually do its job enormously better.
6: That was Rollo Carpenter, whose chatbot technology drives the characters in the game.
7: So,
5: Chris, have you actually had a go on this? And if so, were you able to solve a mystery?
6: I didn't get as far as solving a mystery. I did try out interrogating one of the characters, and you can see the results of that up on a video on BBC News Online. It does work surprisingly well, actually, asking questions in natural ways, even trying to catch it out a little bit. You can still have a go at the game. Uh, It's still up online as we speak. Uh, 221b.sh is the web address
5: so i 'm going to probably have a go on that as soon as possible, but is this also now something we 're going to see enter more areas of gaming
6: i think it 's hard with the big budget games. Uh, game designers have told me the challenge there is essentially that you have very complicated pieces of animation when you have these, for console games when you have these stunning uh, visuals. you get voice actors to do the dialogue, so spontaneously creating dialogue and the action to go alongside it is quite a big technical challenge just from the sound and visual side let alone making that dialogue meaningful so this is still an area where there's a lot of development to be done it's still a big technical challenge
0: elementary my dear mira sounds fun though doesn't it that game i might have a go myself that was mira sinthalingham talking to chris valance who's our resident tech expert and he was explaining how artificial intelligence in the world of gaming and uh, possibly call centers could be the way forward oh dear Diana.
2: Right, I understand we have a question from Amanda.
8: Hello, hi. Yes, yeah, um I'm actually having a little bit of an argument with my husband at the moment regarding our electricity bill. Um it's almost doubled in the last year and he seems to think that it's
4: because I leave the lights on constantly. Um I disagree. I think that it's possibly the fact that he plays his Xbox maybe 24 hours a day over the
8: weekend. Um, It's also got a hot tub out in the garden that's heated constantly,
2: Um, a pond which has got a pump on it, and I would just like to
8: know the actual difference between the costs of these various things.
2: Oh dear! Right, I don't want to be responsible for splitting up a marriage. <laughs> I know a good
0: lawyer, um, Amanda. Just thought I'd drop that in.
2: Okay. Well, um, I'm I'm actually a bit of a games console person myself. Okay, um, okay. So uh, this was quite enlightening for me. Actually, I've, I've got some numbers for you. So right. um, what I've done is I've taken, uh, I've made the assumption that you pay maybe fifteen pence per kilowatt hour, um, and I guess sort of the euro is on parity with the pound at the yes. moment. So, yes. um, so let's imagine that your husband is. Playing Playing on a 42-inch LCD TV—that's pretty big—and mm-hmm. yeah, that so. will draw about 200 watts. And so, if uh, so, that will probably cost about three pence per hour. And if you're doing two times five-hour sessions over the weekend, that's going to be about 30 pence. Now, the Xbox on its own—that uh, draws about 160 watts. So that's going to be 24 pence for the same amount of time um, for each five-hour session. So the total will be about 54p. So that's going to be 84p for a 10-hour week. Ken Session right. um, Sounds now. of good value it's not bad, actually. It's a lot less <laughs> than I thought it was, which, um, yeah, I was playing on it earlier today, anyway. I was uh, it was going to
0: be more. <laughs> but, but the hot tub and, and the pool pump and everything, like the yeah. pump pump, that, that's going to be quite okay, hungry, yeah. isn't it? Now,
2: now, the hot tub is where it gets a bit serious, I'm afraid. From my research, most hot tubs seem to use about 2,000 watts, which is a lot. And that's oh, going right. to cost about 30 pence per hour, so that's going to be 90 pence for a three-hour session, um, or it's going to be £2.40 for a full day so and Amanda, for a full week. It's, six six pounds, it's curtains, for the, it's curtains
0: for, the, for the fish, Amanda. Yeah,
2: yeah. You have to eat them.
0: <laughs> I, I'd, I'd catch them and eat them.
2: <laughs> um, and then, if you want to compare it with your your bulb usage, um, so if you've got energy saving bulbs, I'm, I'm guessing that you're good good, good boys and um, girls over there. And, and uh, but we've got a lot of spots in our house. Okay. They, I think, use quite a lot of electric, don't they? OK, well, I mean, if you're using a, a nice 20-watt energy sal- saving bulb and you've got three of them on for eight hours overnight, seven days a week, that's going to cost you about 50p. But if you've yeah. got the old-fashioned style ones, that's going to be £2.52, but yeah, I'm afraid the uh, the whirlpool there or the hot tub, that's going to be the real killer. Heating
0: Definitely. all that water up <laughs> is going to be really costly, isn't it? Amanda, thank you very much. It's, uh, I hope that you can resolve it. I think the, the bottom line is that uh, no-one really is any worse. Than, than the other, uh, but, yeah, the, mm. but the heating up a lot of water in a hot tub is going to be quite costly, but then so are those, those light bulbs. Maybe consider some energy-saving ones.
8: That's it, that's it. Oh. I think you're probably right. And, and the
0: one-megawatt um, tableau of Christmas decorations you put on the outside of the house this Christmas, <laughs> that's got to go too, okay? <laughs> okay,
1: so oh. we'll be fish next summer. <laughs> Good to
0: have you on the Naked Scientist. Thanks for calling.
1: Thanks a lot, okay.
0: Amanda Berta calling us with her electricity conundrum. OK, I think this is probably one for you, Dave. Greg has been in touch.
7: Yeah, good day. I'm Greg
6: from Australia. Got a question about the Large Hadron Collider I was hoping you could answer. I'm curious about the temperatures that they're running the experiments at. Just wanted to know if you could explain why the temperatures are so low. I think it's around minus 270 degrees. And also how they get the temperature that low and how they maintain it.
3: Okay, there are temperatures in the LHC of about 1.9 Kelvin. That's 1.9 degrees above absolute zero, so about minus 271 and a bit degrees centigrade. Um, There's a couple of main reasons for doing this. Um, One of the big ones is the LHC has huge magnets in it, which are used to bend the particles around corners. They have to be incredibly strong magnets. And you can't do that with a normal permanent magnet, you just can't get them strong enough. Um, You have to use an electromagnet. If you made the electromagnet out of normal copper wire, it would just melt in no time in order to get that strong a field. So what they have to use is superconducting magnets. A superconductor is a material which, when you cool it down enough, its resistivity goes to zero, so it will pass a current with no resistance at all. This is great for a magnet because you just start a current flowing and it keeps on going forever. The problem with superconductors is the bigger magnetic field you, you apply to them, the lower the temperature they start working. So if you want to make incredibly strong magnets, you have to use very, very low temperatures. They're using about 1.9 degrees above absolute zero. And this is actually below the temperature of liquid helium at normal atmospheric pressure. So what they have to do is they take liquid helium, which you've made essentially with a very, very big fridge by compressing gases and letting them expand. And as they expand, they get colder. You then take liquid helium and pump on it, so you reduce the pressure above it, so then it boils and boils and boils until it gets colder and colder and colder down to about 1.9 Kelvin, in fact 1.8 Kelvin, and then they pump that round the system and cool down the magnets.
0: I would come off that by saying cool, but that would seem like an awful pun. But the, the bill for doing that must be absolutely huge to, to do that, or once you've got it to that liquid state, is it so well insulated that it just stays that way?
3: How does it work? It is going to need a huge amount of energy because although they're not moving that much energy out of the system, um, they're probably moving a couple of hundred kilowatts of energy, which by the standards of huge um, industrial processes isn't very much. Um, the problem is, the colder you take the energy from, the harder work it gets. So, if you move energy from somewhere at you know, room temperature to somewhere a bit hot, a couple of degrees hotter, then that uses very little electrical energy. If you move it from something at one point two Kelvin to room temperature, that requires an immense amount of energy.
0: And, and the magnetic field that will be generated at those low temperatures of that superconducting magnet. Will you get a magnetic field once you've basically fired up the magnet that will just sustain itself because there's no resistance? And will you only be losing the magnetic field because the particles will sap energy from it so it will therefore need to be topped up for that reason?
3: Um, the superconducting magnets, once they start going, they essentially work like a permanent magnet. Um, people have done experiments with superconducting magnets, and as far as they know, they'll, um, definitely some of them will keep on going for billions of years. Um, the real problem is if part of the superconductor warms up, at which point you've got a huge amount of electrical energy running around it, all of which is dumped into a very small area of the superconductor, which gets very, very hot. All this liquid helium, which you've got inside there, suddenly boils, and that produces a huge amount of gas, which expounds very, very rapidly. And actually, this was a problem they had last year when it all went horribly wrong. This huge amount of gas then pushed the magnets round. He- billions of pounds worth of stuff got just shuffled around this system, and it caused an immense amount of damage. Let's hope there's not a repeat. Thank you, Dave.
0: Uh, We've also heard on Twitter, at Naked Scientist from Outstand Jing, who says, how do mosquitoes lay their eggs? We never see them. Well, of course, mosquitoes uh, depend on water for their life cycle. Different mosquitoes live in different environments, and as a result, they depend on different types of water, stagnant water, big ponds of water dumped car tyres with bits of water, that kind of thing. And you can normally tell which species of mosquito you're dealing with depending upon where they're laying eggs. But the bottom line is the mosquito goes down to the water once it's mated and different species of mosquito lay different eggs in different ways, but they all lay their eggs into water the certain species lay them as individual eggs which drift off some of them lay big rafts of eggs and the eggs then mature and hatch into little larvae which then have an aquatic phase they grow in the water they eat algae and things uh, and turn into mosquito larvae that are big these eventually then mature into full-blown mosquito flies that then take off and come and eat you Um, and so you just have to keep an eye on a patch of water and you'll see the mosquitoes coming down to lay their eggs
2: Okay, Chris, I've got a question here from Hamza, and he asks, can we create artificial nerve signals?
0: Yes, we can. Um, We actually know quite a lot about how nerve information travels. If you can imagine a nerve cell as a bit like a long straw with sides and a container in the middle, a space in the middle, What nerves do is to move positively charged ions, in this case sodium ions, from the inside of their channel, inside the nerve, to the outside world. So the inside of the nerve is a bit minus compared to the surroundings. And when a nerve impulse travels along a nerve, what happens is that some positive, some sodium, goes back inside the nerve through tiny pores which are on the surface of the nerve and this does what's called depolarizing the nerve and it makes that little section of the nerve become transiently a bit positive now what that does is two things one it starts an electrical signal rather like a newton's cradle running inside the nerve but it also activates other little channels and pores on the surface of the nerve a bit further downstream and they open and let some more plus in to sustain and maintain the propagation of the signal, which in a big nerve is actually travelling along at something like 100 metres a second. It only actually ends up going in one direction, though, because in the opposite direction, behind where it's just been the nerve then pumps the plus back out again and puts some bit less plus in, so it goes back to being minus, so the nerve resets itself. And this process happens in milliseconds, so you can literally conduct hundreds if not thousands of these impulses down a nerve in less than a second, so the information can travel very, very fast. And you can make that happen by stimulating the nerve. If you just apply a little bit of electricity to the wall of the nerve, to the nerve fibre itself, you can actually make that process trigger off and then it self-sustains. The signal will then propagate along the nerve to wherever it goes in both directions actually and scientists use this for a number of reasons one is that you can artificially activate muscles that way, so if you've been paralysed for example you can use techniques like this to restore movement to certain muscle groups by electrically stimulating the nerves that supply those muscles and another reason is to use brain stimulation Um, one disease is Parkinson's disease where this has been done quite effectively Scientists implant a little electrode in the part of the brain which is involved in the same circuit as is affected by Parkinson's disease and which makes movement. And if you stimulate those bits of the brain, electrically, you can trigger off impulses in the right way and at the right rate to help people who have Parkinson's symptoms to overcome those symptoms and move a bit more easily. So it is possible to recreate nerve signals. At the moment, it's fairly low resolution. You're not stimulating individual nerve cells. You're stimulating clusters of nerve cells, but at the same time, you can do that. And and also, if you listened to last week's programme, you'll know that we talked about cochlear implants, which are things that can basically stimulate the nerve that conveys hearing information into the brainstem, well, they're doing effectively the same thing. They're stimulating nerve cells directly to send sound information into the brain.
2: Yeah, because uh, I remember about a year ago we had a story on breaking science, didn't we, um, with the researcher Andrew Schwartz who basically monitored the signals being sent from chimps' brains and then translated them uh, using a computer into muscle movements.
0: Yeah, I guess that's sort of going the other way, isn't it? Rather than putting input into a cluster of nerve cells, what he was doing was recording the activity, understanding how nerves are encoding information and using that, once it's been decoded by a computer, to then drive muscle movements again in an arm. I think they were making the chimpanzees reach out and grab things, weren't they, just by the power of thought? Indeed. Right, this is The Naked Scientist, and we're solving your science conundrums. We can be contacted on Twitter at Scientists or you can send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com.
1: Bringing the facts to bear, the Naked Scientists.
2: And now it's time for Kitchen Science, and this week we thought we'd get experimental to answer this seasonal question.
8: Hi, it's Chris Ogilvy here from Wakefield, West Yorkshire. We currently spread rock salt on the roads in the winter weather. The grit's not used to increase traction on the snow. It's just a convenient delivery method for salt, as a salt and water solution remains liquid below zero centigrade. So if all we need to melt ice and snow is a liquid salt solution, why not just pour seawater onto the roads and pavements? The only salt mines in the UK are in Northern Ireland, Cheshire and Cleveland, but nowhere more than 70 miles from the sea. So using seawater must be cheaper and more practical solution than rock salt.
2: So, Dave, why don't we use seawater?
3: Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is just logistical. Although Chris was thinking that it would be a lot cheaper to get the, stu- the seawater to the roads because it's much less far to go, um, seawater is essentially fresh water mixed with about 35 grams per litre of salt. So about a 30th of the seawater is salt. So if you want to get the same amount of salt onto your road, you're going to have to use 30 times as much stuff, which means you're going to have to carry it 30 so times as much weight. it's going to be a weight. lot heavier. It's going to be a lot heavier, so I'm not convinced about the logistics argument. And the other one is just how well it works as a de Now, a really important question for that is how cold something will work as a de So, for example, the traditional thing that you use is salt. So I've just got a set of normal table salt here, and I have got a bowl full of... Um, Ice cubes. Put a couple more ice cubes in there. Right, so first thing we can do is just try using conventional salt and see what happens.
2: And so we've got a bowl full of ice there, um, so Dave is just about to add some salt.
3: And I've also got a thermometer to measure the temperature as this happens.
2: Okay, so this is representing the grit on the road, essentially.
3: Yeah, so this is essentially got ice on the road, and we're going to throw some salt on it and see what happens. Okay. So if we start off, the ice is at about 0 degrees C, give or take.
2: Okay, sounds about right for frozen water. If
3: we throw some salt on the top.
2: That looks like a lovely cocktail.
3: You can sometimes hear it's just crackling a bit.
2: Yeah, just slightly.
3: Okay, now the reason for that might become clear when we measure the temperature. Okay. So if we measure the temperature of this, it's now down to about minus 10, minus 11 degrees centigrade. That's quite cold. That's really quite chilly. And if you look carefully at the ice, you can see it melting where the salt is, and so it's melting away. So what's happening is the salt's causing the ice to melt. And in order to melt ice, you need a huge amount of energy. That's because you're ripping apart bonds between water molecules. And that energy's got to come from somewhere. And the place it comes from is the thermal energy of the surroundings. So the temperature of the ice is reduced because you're just taking heat out of it in order to melt the ice. And the, it will keep on melting until you reaches the melting point of the liquid above it, so the salt water mix. So we can use this as a way of measuring how good something is at de-icing things as to how low a temperature it will get ice to by putting it on, when you put it on the ice.
2: Right, so when you're gritting the road, what it means is that the temperature outside has to be that much colder in order for the ice or water to freeze.
3: That's right, so, um, this, so this salt would work down to minus 13 degrees centigrade perfectly f- fine, but any, anything below that, it would still freeze.
0: It's still amazing to think that in order to melt something, paradoxically, you're making it colder. That's
3: right, but yeah, the energy's got to come from somewhere.
0: <laughs> no such thing as a free lunch. Well, what, what are you going to do
3: next? Okay, so I've now got two more b- uh, bowls um, full of ice, and I'm going to put some seawater, which I mixed up earlier, into one of them.
2: Okay. Another tasty cocktail, courtesy of Dave.
3: So this has got a few turds, a couple of condoms, that kind of thing, is it? (laughs) It Genuine sea water. That was fresh water mixed with salt, (laughs) because it's quite a long way to the sea from Cambridge. And just for a change, I thought we'd try some screen wash, which is supposed to be an antifreeze as well. So we'll try putting that one into another bowl. My screen wash didn't work this winter. Driving down the motorway... Completely locked up solid. Actually, I know I several people that's happened my, to. Yeah.
2: yeah, they just sort of press the screen wash button and nothing comes out. <laughs>
3: yeah, the whole of my screen wash system froze. You had to hair dry it for about half an hour before I went somewhere just before Christmas. That's
0: no good. You should stop washing your hair and
3: your screen wash. Didn't you? <laughs> okay, so now we'll have a look at the seawater and see what temperature it's getting down to. Okay.
2: Using your very high-tech temperature measuring device.
3: Yeah, this is a radiation thermometer. It can measure temperature things without touching it. So this it. is just basically repeating the sprinkling on the salt, but seawater instead. That's right. Yeah. Um, we've cooled down the seawater to about 0 degrees C. in all. a fair to test. Yeah, a fair yeah. test. And that comes out at about minus half a degree C. Oh,
0: so it's not quite much. the minus 13 then, is it?
3: No, basically the less salt you have in the solution, the higher the melting point. So seawater isn't actually a very concentrated solution, so it doesn't work very well. Actually, if you have pure seawater, its melting point is about minus two degrees C. And Actually, I've managed to freeze some seawater um, in another ice, pot, yeah. which is actually just frozen in there.
2: Wow, you have actually frozen seawater. It's just like being in the Baltic. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right, yeah, I just had another pot of seawater in the ice, in the pot pot with ice and salt in it, and it's frozen because it's so, minus thirteen, of course. Because it's minus so, thirteen. So the
0: bottom line for Chris Ogilvie's question is that uh, we could use seawater, assuming that the road temperature was not going to drop below two degrees, which is the freezing point of seawater. Anything below that, and seawater is useless. Plus, there's the logistical argument you made, which is that you've got to cart thirty times as much equivalent around to get the same effect as the equivalent amount of grit and salt
3: that's right anything below minus two and it will start freezing you've just created yourself an ice rink what about the screen wash and the antifreeze Um, well the the screen wash which ought to be actually antifreeze is working better than the seawater but not hugely better it's down to minus four or five degrees c so better but not perfect is that a hundred percent concentration that was a hundred percent concentration although it is being diluted as the ice melts melts, so it's probably a fairly fair test
0: and um, just to follow up on a couple of questions, I mean, how does that actually protect your car if you put that antifreeze mixture in your radiator? Why is that good?
3: Um, and, uh, antifreeze is probably even stronger than the screen wash because it can actually be really quite nasty stuff. It's actually quite poisonous. Um, basically, it does exactly the same thing as the salt does. It stops the water freezing in the pipes. When water freezes, it expands and can break all sorts of bits of your car apart. The forces it, it can exert are immense. Um, so it just stops it stops the coolant system in your car freezing, so your car doesn't break apart in
0: cold uh, o- Jing uh, says on Twitter, at Naked Scientists. if you want to send us a Twitter me- message uh, does beer have a lower freezing temperature than water?
3: Yes, beer's got lots of things dissolved in it it's got alcohol in there, it's got sugar in there and basically anything dissolved in water will reduce its freezing point so be- beer does freeze at below zero, mi- maybe minus one, minus two
0: um,
3: and the CO2 I suppose if it's fizzy, that
0: will have an effect too
3: that will also have a f- an effect Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, and so If you were to take some beer and put that in the freezer, could you make it much stronger? Is this a way that you could illicitly do a bit of distillation because you'd freeze the water into ice first and then some slightly more alcoholic liquid would
3: be left? That's right. Um, When you freeze water, it can't take in all these solutes, all these dissolved things into its structure um, because ice remains really quite pure. Um, And so what's left gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I don't know if you've ever drunk frozen squash or frozen fruit juice. The stuff which you drink first is incredibly um, strong, incredibly sugary. And then slowly as it melts, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker until what's left at the end is basically pure water.
2: Actually, I did used to know someone who was a big fan of beer lollies. I think that's why.
3: <laughs> Vodka jelly, probably as well.
0: Yes. Thank you very much, Dave Answer, with this week's Kitchen Science. You can find details on the web, presumably.
3: Yep, um, at www.thenakedscientist.comslash kitchen science. Some wonderful pictures and uh, Dave's
0: write up if you'd like to try the experiment for yourself at home and then you can tell us what you find. Now, Dinah, this one for you. You've got the medieval smelly question and you've got <laughs> another smelly question. Uh, Sandra. Uh, I I presume that's her name because it's quite a long name she's written here. She says she's in surprise in Arizona and she wants to know what volume of gas a person has to have, in other words, internal gas farts, uh, to affect their own weight. Um, Does having gas make you weigh more or less?
2: Well, we had a bit of a a discussion about this, and I think what it comes down to is uh, what your farts are composed of. Um, Of course, there's some hydrogen sulphide in there and occasionally some methane. I think it depends uh, what kind of bacteria you have in your gut, but uh, I think it was about... Five out of seven people will have uh, methane produced in their farts, um, and of course methane is lighter uh, than general gas, and therefore uh, you'd think if you had that in your gut, then it would make you a bit lighter. Um, but of course there's the question of pressure. So um, if you have a lot of gas in your body that's under pressure, you know maybe it would actually be denser than air and, and actually make you heavier. What do you think, Dave? Oh
3: uh, yeah, there are various things which could be in the gas. Um, one of the, one which could be a really major. Concern constituent is hydrogen which is one of the lightest gases we know of and that can be up to 50 percent of your um, flatulence and if if so if it's made up of mostly hydrogen then it's going to be much less dense and pressure the pressure changes are going to be very very small so um it yeah again it it could when you um, expel the gas it could even make you heavier because the hydrogen could have been acting a bit like a helium balloon and floating (laughs) you ever so slightly
2: I don't know if you could uh, do a test by seeing if it gives a squeaky pop with a lighted splint. Maybe a kitchen
3: science for the future. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: got, a, got a question here. Uh, Never and also Erin asked the same thing. They said, does this whole business of tapping a tin when you've had, say, a drink can come out of a drink dispenser, does tapping the tin to stop it
3: exploding all over you really work or is that a myth? It does certainly have an effect. The theory is, or it can have an effect, I haven't got it to work 100%, but it's supposed to help. The idea is that if you're shaking up a, a can, the reason why it explodes is there's lots of little bubbles in there already of carbon dioxide in the, bu- bu- in the liquid already. That gives bubbles, lots of gas, lots of places to start bubbles, and they can get bigger very, very quickly. So it all explodes in forms a foam. If you tap it, the idea is you dislodge the ones which are stuck around the bottom and on the sides. It's got fewer bubbles in there at the bottom, so it makes the foam much more slowly and it doesn't make a mess. Terrific. Thank you, Dave. Uh, I'm just going to sneak this one in, which is E. Hill Burns
0: on Twitter, at Naked Scientist, wrote to us said, do all satellites go around a planet? Um, And he also then says stars and other things. So I think we're presuming um, non-man-made satellites in the same direction. And if so, why? Well, the answer is effectively yes, because they condense out of what's called a protoplanetary disk, which is a big spinning disk of material, which initially starts off as an envelope around the star which is at the center of the solar system or, or the, the particular galaxy area you're talking about. And that then condenses into planetesimals, little objects that become and accrete into the big objects and conservation of angular momentum means they're all turning and once you've done all the equations and everything has collided with everything else it's going to you end up with something that usually is all turning in one net direction. Um, That's not to say that big collisions can't come in and then turn things around a bit and we think that Uranus is turning on its side because it is, possibly because there was a big collision with something else way back in history and that's what made things actually turn around in that rather strange way. So the answer is yes, we think things do go around in one consistent degree uh, direction in the same plain but there are exceptions at the level of individual bodies which can spin in funny directions. Right now it's time for this week's question of the week. Diana?
2: Well uh, this week it's all about how to look good with a gecko.
4: My name is Luke McNeil and my question is it's often said that people resemble their pets or vice versa. Is this a phenomena that has been studied Do people choose pets that resemble them, or is this a matter of us noticing when people do resemble their pets and forgetting when we see people who do not resemble their pets?
2: So, is it a matter of selective memory or selective image?
8: I'm Dr. Lance Workman. I'm a psychologist at Bath Spa University. Well, I think... There are two reasons why pets look like their owners. The first reason is that we tend to buy pets, and dogs in particular, that fit in with our lifestyle. So if you're an active, robust person with lots of energy, who likes to be outdoors a lot, then you may well buy a dog that is likewise full of energy. It's a bit like selecting a spouse. It will work really well if you find someone who fits in with your lifestyle. That's the first reason. I think the second reason is a more subtle one, and that is that I think we're drawn to others that look a bit like ourselves. It's a bit of an old Freudian notion, but I think it does stand up to scrutiny. So at some sort of subconscious level, when we choose a pet, we're looking for something that in some way reflects ourselves. I think there's both of these reasons going on there. I think you begin to look for similarities rather than differences. So I think if we say, oh, here's Fred and here's Jack Russell, don't they look similar? You're already led along that path. There's something that some people call the confirmation bias. So, for example, if you go to a fortune teller and they say six things out of 20 that are correct, you go away and you remember those six things and you forget the other 14. And my own study suggests that people get this right about two-thirds of the time, maybe 60%, something like that. So there's a good 30 to 40% of the time they get wrong in matching pets up to their owners. So I think, we, again, we remember the ones we get right, but again, two-thirds is well above chance. So it's a mixture of some real truth in the idea that we look like our pets and the fact that we, we look for evidence that supports
0: that case. Diana, owner of uh, two Rottweilers and I'm just joking. Oh
8: shut up,
2: I know you own a weasel don't you Chris? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Meow. Uh, So although we do tend to remember better those pets which resembled their owners, it looks like many pet buyers will tend to choose animals which look a little bit like they do and in Lance's research he tested this by showing 70 volunteers photos of dogs and dog owners and asked them to match one to the other and 60% of the time they got it right. I wonder if the same is true for cats because they tend to be a bit more sort of homogenous and In terms of shape, I think, possibly. Well, next week we'll be researching another sort of pet.
4: Hi, naked scientists. I'm Jan from Norwich and I'm the captain of a large oil tanker. I have a question about pigeons. We often get flocks of wild and racing pigeons land on our decks and they can stay for weeks until the crew have fattened them up for the pot, that is. My question is this Does the steel in the structure of the ship, which is about 50,000 tonnes, affect the pigeon's navigation system? I have heard that they rely in parts on the Earth's magnetic field
2: can migratory birds be pulled off course by large steel objects like Jan's 50,000 tonnes of steel tanker uh, let us know what you think by email, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or write your answer on the forum for us to read out and the forum is at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum.
0: And if you have any fancy pigeon related uh, recipes for yarn to take with him on his next set of travels then you can send those in too. And interestingly Diana, I've just seen pop up here, Amateur Scientist has just written into our Second Life site um, but many pets are also given as gift so presumably uh, if what you're saying is true then the person giving the gift must also think that the gift looks a bit like the presumptive new owner would you agree
2: i think that's a bit presumptive of the <laughs> gift giver isn't it
0: <laughs> you can get your words together better than i can this evening thank you very much diana o'carroll with this week's question of the week and you can get that again through our website as its own independent podcast on itunes or at nakedscientist.com forward slash q o t w well that's it for this week we have run out of time thank you for all your questions thoughts and comments keep them coming in Do it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or follow us on twitter at nakedscientist next week we're back with a look at what happens when you blow things up we've got an explosive bit of broadcasting for you looking at the science of landmines and how we study them safely and how we build better vehicles that are more landmine resistant we'll also be looking at how you study explosions safely in the laboratory and what happens when you blow stuff up underwater. If you've got any explosively oriented type questions, then do send them in. It's chris at scientists.com. Thank you to our wonderful production team, Ben Valsler, Amira Senthalingam and our other two wonderful team members Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. Until next time, goodbye!
1: The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.